Tis the season to be on edge with a look at today's graceful truth. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. But this time of year lends itself to us just being a little on edge. Got a lot on the schedule, got a lot going on. And so it's good to know that one day, one day, beloved, we'll be freed from all that. We'll be freed from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. Welcome to Graceful Truth, the weekly radio program originating from the pulpit teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church, located in Redwood City, revealing God's grace through God's truth. We're in Titus chapter 3 today, verses 4 through 7, in a message simply entitled, When Grace Appeared. We're understanding the real reason for the season, why Jesus really came, that is, to save us, to redeem us. Now, what does the word saved actually mean? Well, that's what we focus our attention on today. Please join us. With this edition of Graceful Truth Now, once again, our teacher and pastor is Pastor Steve Converse. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That statement, the idea that we've been justified, the idea it talks about his appearing to us, he saved us. All that, that whole section there is just loaded. I mean, you could spend months teaching through that section. We're not going to do that. So just relax. But we are going to take some highlights out of the text today and look at them because there's just so much there. It sweeps from eternity past all the way through to eternity future. It's timeless. And there's a lot of depth there in that passage. But there's one phrase that kind of stands out if you look at that passage. There's one phrase that your eyes should just zero in on. And it's right there in verse 5. The middle of verse 5. Three English words. He saved us. He saved us. That's the heart of this passage. And you know what? It's also really the core. You might call it the core of the Christian faith. That's what our Christian faith is about. The idea that he saved us. It's all about salvation. It's all about God saving sinners. That word saved has really become a distinctly Christian, you might call it, word. Sozo in the Greek, and it's translated saved. And it could mean a temporary deliverance. It could mean that. It was a word used to describe the rescuing of someone from danger. uh, Preserving someone safe from harm. Uh, delivering someone out of potential, even life-threatening situations into safety. And it could be used in a, in a lot of different ways in a temporal way. In other words, wow, I, I was saved from that. I was saved from this automobile accident. I was saved from this. In Matthew's Gospel, it's used a lot of times talking about the word saved in just a, a temporal uh, a way. In, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 25... You remember where the disciples were on the storm of Galilee and uh, they cried out to the Lord, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. They weren't talking about their their spiritual salvation, okay? They were talking about their physical lives. That's what they were talking about. So the verb speaks of rescuing someone 
from imminent, grave, serious, and even permanent danger or disaster, you might say. In a spiritual sense, however, in the New Testament, it often has the idea of being saved from sin, being rescued from sin, from sin's power, from sin's penalty, and ultimately from sin's presence. It talks about being preserved, therefore safe and unharmed from divine wrath, from judgment, from hell, from eternal punishment. Uh, We know that word well. We love that word as Christians. We understand what it means. We talk about being saved. You ask somebody, well, when were you saved? And, you know, and they give their testimony. We talk about salvation, about the blessedness of salvation, what we read this morning out of Ephesians chapter 1. All those are blessings as a result of God saving us. We remember the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save what? Sinners. To rescue otherwise doomed and and damned sinners. That's what he did. He came into the world to save sinners. The word in its spiritual sense, not just talking about being saved from danger or something like that, but in the spiritual sense, it not only carries a negative connotation that is rescuing us from imminent disaster or deadly danger, it also has a positive connotation. And that it carries the essence of not only lifting us out of danger, But it also has the idea of putting us into blessing as Christians. Not only delivering us from punishment, which is the negative side, but also putting us into glory. Not only taking us out of the threat of hell, but giving us the hope of heaven. Not only dismissing us from divine wrath, but bringing us under divine blessing in our lives. That's what that word means. The idea of being saved. All that and more. The word carries the idea of being delivered, as Paul said, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the light of God's dear Son. It's used in such a way, if you look in in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, where it says that the Lord was adding to the church, what? Daily those who should be saved. They were being rescued out of sin. They were being placed into the body of Christ, into the church, the very place of blessing. And so we've come to know that term. We've even grown familiar with that term. Maybe too familiar with that term. Sometimes when you share that with people, you know, where you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't like to use that kind of word. It's kind of overused. It's overdone. I think it's kind of irrelevant now and in the culture we live in today. Maybe you should use a better term than just saying, are you saved? Well, I don't know. The Bible here says that he saved us. I think we would have a hard time improving on the word of God. That's the word he uses. It's a marvelous, it's a rich term. And it doesn't need to be loaded down with so much, quote, unquote, Christian connotations that we lose the sense of the meaning, what it really means. It means to be rescued from imminent, deadly danger. That's the idea. You can sing songs about it. We sang one this morning, Jesus Saves. There's another song, a hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior, Hallelujah, what a friend, saving, helping, keeping, loving, He is with me to the end. We sing about His salvation. We sing about the salvation that He grants us. We talk about the salvation. We even pray to God and we thank Him for our salvation, or we should. It's really the core. It's the essence of everything we believe. The interesting thing about Christianity, it's, it's, it's not just another religion. It's really about a rescuing relationship. It's about somebody rescuing somebody else. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about having a relationship, a personal relationship, with the God who rescues. It's God saving men and women and children from their sin. 
and the inevitable, deadly, eternal consequence of that sin. So when we preach, or when we witness, or when we worship, or when we pray, or maybe we sing songs, hopefully it says something about our salvation. Because it's kind of an important thing to think about. So here in Titus, we see it basically summed up, the Christian faith summed up in those words, He saved us from sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, ultimately from the presence of sin. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward so much to the day when I don't have to deal with sin on an everyday basis. Are you with me on that? I mean, aren't you looking forward to the day when God just says, you know what, come home, transform, glorified body, sin, what's that? (laughs) Incredible. But that day's not here yet. At least not yet. Never know. See, the tricky thing is you never know when that day is coming, (laughs) right? We never know when we may pass from this life into the next. So we have to be ready. We have to make sure that our faith is secure in Christ. But man, I'm longing for that day. I was just out the other day doing some shopping. I was over at Michael's and getting some stuff. And I was kind of head of the line. Uh, if you shop, guys, you probably don't go into Michael's much. But you know, I used to be a manager, assistant manager of a Michael's store over in Fremont, or Newark. And so I know, you know how, how the store works. So I was standing in line, and, and they have a bunch of registers, but they have one line. You understand this? I mean, there's only one line. There's a bunch of registers there. Most of them are empty. They had two people working the register. And so I got my stuff and got up there kind of quick, you know, and I'm waiting up there. And all of a sudden, you know, some young girl and her boyfriend, oh, there's an opening over here. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, okay, and I'm holding a bunch of stuff. So, you know, I didn't have a cart. So I'm going, okay. Hopefully they'll say something to these people that, you know, the line is back there, not over here. But I was getting irritated. I was getting frustrated. I was getting impatient. And the girl actually started to ring her up. And I'm thinking, this this is not right. This is not... I've been waiting here for Miss Mister, it was, cashier here to get his stuff together so he could finish whatever he was doing and and get me done. And, and, you know, I was next in line. And this person just, couple just kind of butts in front. Well, she started ringing the stuff up. And then the manager said, oh, you can't butt in line that way. So, So he had to actually cancel. It took her longer to cancel out the transaction and make the lady go to the end of the line and just finish it, you know. Oh, but, you know, sin has a way of just creeping up in our hearts sometimes. And, I mean, I was thinking some unpleasant thoughts toward not only the Michael store in general, you know, but just the, everything. I just left there. It was just not a good experience. That's why I don't go shopping. I don't like to go shopping. Did anybody go shopping Friday, last Friday, Black Friday, whatever they call it? Whoa, you went out shopping. I, yeah, bless your heart. You know, I was picked someone up in San Mateo for the Thanksgiving dinner, and I was driving. We were driving back from from Marjorie's house, and on 101 there, I looked off to Best Buy. They got tents up. This is Thanksgiving. They got tents up outside, like four tents. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? You know, I thought, man, are these people camping out? Are they actually waiting for the doors? What could? Are they giving away free computers? What's going on? You know, so I went home and looked through the newspaper. I'm trying to find out what are they? Are they giving away the shop or what? incredible. But this time of year lends itself to us just being a little on edge. Got a lot on the schedule, got a lot going on. And so it's good to know that one day, one day, beloved, we'll be freed from all that. We'll be freed from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. Well, to remind us, it's almost 
kind of comedy how he he does this. He, he, he kind of sets us up here in a way because in verse 5 he says, He saved us. Lest you forget that you need saving. He just thought he would remind you a couple verses ahead of time before he said that you were saved. He was just going to remind you. Look at verse 3 with me. Because sometimes we throw out, oh yeah, yeah, I'm saved, I'm saved. You're not. Too bad. We have to be reminded as Christians sometimes from where we've come. And he does that right off the bat. Look at verse 3. He says, for we, are, we ourselves were once foolish. Do you know you once were foolish? Some of you may be saying, yeah, well, talk to my husband, he's still foolish. Or talk to my wife, she's still foolish. Whatever. But he says here, we once were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, that's the condition of human depravity. That's where we're at. He points it out there very clearly. Also, over in other areas of the the uh, New Testament, Paul describes this. And if you have time, not now, but after, maybe after uh, service this afternoon, go through Romans chap- chapter 1. Because he really describes man as being a victim of the lust of, of his heart to impurity. It says, he, he describes him as giving his body over to be dishonored. It says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. That they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. I mean, that's the day and age we live in. You know, they're more concerned about some little, you know, red-tailed fox up in the hills somewhere than they are about the slaughter of innocent children every day. They worship the creation. They worship the creature rather than the creator. It goes on there in Romans 1. It says that he's given them over to degrading passions, such as women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, such as men burning in the desires one toward another. Men with men to committing indecent acts, it says, receiving their own dues, their own persons, the due penalty of their error. He describes human depravity as a reprobate, depraved mind, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We see that today, don't we? Don't we see people inventing new ways to be evil? I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, what are they going to think of next? He says, depraved fallen man is without understanding. He's untrustworthy. He's unloving and he's unmerciful. And even though he knows the ordinance of God and he knows that those who practice such things as this are worthy of death, he not only does them, but the Bible says that he gives hearty approval to the rest of them as they do them. In other words, they're kind of like cheerleaders. Yeah, yeah. More evil, more evil. I mean, you know, you read about in the paper where some poor guy is trampled to death at Walmart. I mean, can you believe? Or there's down in Palm Desert, there's, there's a shooting that police had to come in and kill someone. Gang-related thing in a, in a, in a uh, Circuit City parking lot down there. Incredible. The day and age we live in. Galatians chapter 5 even describes it worse. It says... Talks about engaging in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. Just in case he didn't mention your little pet sin, things like that, he says. First Corinthians 6. He describes fallen men as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, 
thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit now working in the sons of disobedience describes their hearts as being darkened, their understandings being darkened, excluded from the life of God, being ignorant, hard of heart, callous, sensual, practicing every kind of impurity with greediness. says they're driven by the lusts of their flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. That's human depravity, beloved. That's the way the Bible explains it. See, that's a description of man pre-Christ, before salvation, before He saved us. And there's not a person in this room that could say, oh no, that doesn't describe me. I was perfect before I got saved. Beloved, I used to think that. Not perfect, but I thought I was a pretty good kid because I was always comparing myself to my crazy brothers who were doing all sorts of evil. (laughs) Continually. (laughs) So I looked at their lives and here I am, the little altar boy and all this stuff, and I'm thinking, sin, what's that? That's sin. And God had to convict my heart. God had to show me, hey, wait a minute, you're just as bad as they are in your heart. It's interesting here because he calls them foolish in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And notice he includes himself, for we ourselves were once also foolish. It means ignorant. It means lacking understanding. It also uses the word disobedient there. That has the idea of a rebellious lawlessness, a resistance to anything having to do with God, his truth and his commandments. It goes on and it uses the word deceived, which means basically just being able to be led led astray by anything. And then it actually says they were led astray from a, you know, down a perverted path, you might say. It says they were enslaved. They're bond slaves to lust. It's evil desire, pleasure, the need to feel pleasure. That's the society we live in. It says they spend their life in malice. It basically means wickedness and envy, every kind of ill toward others is the idea. And then they're marked by this. They're marked by being hateful. (laughs) And then they're also marked by hating one another. Egocentric, isolated. They become kind of detesting of everybody that they see. Anybody that gets in their way to fulfill their lustful, passionate desire. You see that recently with this whole brouhaha about the election in Proposition 8. They don't care. They're going to do what they want to do. If that means expressing themselves and grabbing a paper cross out of an old woman's hands and tromping it under their feet and pushing her around and trying to intimidate her in a crowd, they'll do it. They don't care. Funny thing is you get some of those people outside of that and outside of that environment and you talk to them one-on-one and they seem like they're very loving, very caring people. Definitely lost. See, all of this basically leads us back to Romans 1.18 that says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. It leads us back to Romans 6.23 where it says, The wages of sin is what? Death. Hell. Eternal punishment. See, that's the horrifying fate we're in and that's why He had to reach down to save us. I mean, it's obvious that we can't rescue ourselves out of this miry pit. Why would we need God if we could rescue ourselves? And so the question is, well, who will rescue such vile, vicious, evil people? Who's going to do it? Tell you what, I mean, no human has the desire to rescue people like that. No human has a plan that somehow they can be rescued. I mean, they may have plans, but you know what? They never work. No human has the power to do that. In the justice system, a lot of times they'll take certain individuals and they'll, they'll, they'll quote, you know, rehabilitate them. 
I'm sorry, beloved, outside of Christ, there's no rehabilitation. Just not. Doesn't work that way. Well, who's going to do it? Who's going to come and rescue these people? Who's going to save these people? That's where it comes to verse 5. It says, he saved us. Well, who's, who is the he talking about? It says there in verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior. Who's that? Verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, beloved, we serve a God who is a saving God. We serve a Christ who is a saving Lord. They're committed to rescuing unworthy sinners. That's what they do. That's why he called, he called God our Savior in Christ is called Christ our Savior throughout this epistle. Because that's what they do. They save people. It's not a church that can save anybody. Well, what's the goal of this? He saves us for what reason? Look at verse 7. He points it out. That we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, instead of living in the fear of death and in the fear of hell and in the fear of eternal punishment and under the power of sin, God says, I want to remove you from that. I want to save you from that. I want to make you heirs of eternal life and live in heaven, in the hope of heaven. He rescues us to change our eternal destiny. That's why He does it. He fills our hearts with hope instead of dread. As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, to make us heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, he says, I want to give you an inheritance that is incorruptible, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. See, and this is the real deal when it comes to incorruptible. I think we've all bought in certain things. It's, yeah, lifetime guarantee on this puppy, you know. This baby will never wear out. And you only find that months down the road, you're looking for that 800 number they told you. You know, yeah, if you have a problem, just call this number and well, we'll replace it. This number has been disconnected. It's like, oh, it wasn't as incorruptible as I thought. Well, he saved us from the consequence of sin, which is hell. He saved us from the place of eternal death, which should fill our hearts with fear. He saved us to a place of eternal life that fills our heart with hope. And namely, it's, it's called heaven. So here we are in these verses 4 through 7, and he focuses on the most important part, the most important element, you might say, of the Christian gospel, and that has to do with our salvation. The rescue of sinners from wrath and hell and the preparation of them as saints for the blessing and for heaven. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's kind of spelling out for us. And there's a lot of theology here. And we're not going to get bogged down in all the theology this morning. Not that theology is a bad thing, but we don't have time, you know, nor ability really this morning to delve into all the theology we see here. This could stand alone, this passage. A lot of commentators believe that these passages in Titus verses 4 through 7 were actually a hymn in the early church. They used to sing it as a song to God, praising Him for their salvation. And it kind of fits there because throughout this whole passage here, he says in verse 8 at the end, he says, this is a faithful saying. In other words, you know what I'm saying. So it was familiar with them. And Paul here in Titus is teaching the church how to live. In chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 2, how to live within the church. You read Titus chapter 2, that's what he talks about. Okay, you're called to this church, well, how are you going to live in this church? That's what he tells you. In Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 3, he says, okay, now you're Christians. How are you going to live in a pagan world? How are you going to do it? You're just going to walk around like this all the time? You know, I'm a Christian. You guys stay away. You're the bad, bad, evil people outside the church. 
See, it's important for him to do this because he wants them to understand that living in a pagan world is hard to do. And the one thing that you have to remember, the only reason that you're different from the people in the world, the people who are unrepentant, the only reason you're different is because God saved you. That's it. Well, next week, we'll go on to see the seven aspects of God's salvation, the kindness of God, the fact that he has saved us by his love, he has regenerated us, it is by his mercy we're saved, by his spirit, by his son, and by his grace. Again, that's next week as we continue our study when grace appeared here on Graceful Truth. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area, and if not, we'd love to have you come by and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, please give us a call. Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, 650-366-9923. Again, you can reach us at 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web, gracefultruth.org. That's gracefultruth.org. And once again, that phone number, 650-366-9923. We trust you'll have a blessed week, and we'll see you back here next week for another broadcast of Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Redwood City.